Good morning, everyone, both at Adam and at Bishan. As we begin our time together, may we be reminded by God of all things. And a very big thing to be reminded of is that we are not known by our first identity, is not by Adam or Bishan. We are not known by our location, by our geography. We are known by being one in Christ. Amen? So for everyone who's tuning in on the internet, listening to this at some point this week and in the future, we pray that we'll listen to God speak to us. And so I've noticed in my 16, 17-month-old granddaughter something about children, something God-given, an innate thing in them. And what's innate in them, instinctive in them? Then when there's an issue to resolve, they put their heart and mind to it, when there's a problem to overcome, they sincerely, no matter how young, try to overcome it. And I noticed this when she was you know, running around with her and she has this, a toy given to somebody, a doggy toy, wooden toy with wheels. And so she's running around. Right? And then all of a sudden she runs, the, the toy turns around. And she looks, oh, it's no, no longer on its wheels. And she tries her best to put it back on. All the effort to put it back, uh, to, to have the balance. That's, that's amazing, right? Very young she, she could do that. And then different things. Just that day, and she was uh, this, this um, donut thing, and there's a handle, and different sized donuts, you put it in from the largest to the smallest at the top, so it looks like a pyramid. And getting the sequence right is not very easy. So she's trying her best as to why if I put this in, it can't go down further. And all that sincerity, and then comes to feeding time, right? We're trying to feed her, she's trying to feed herself, and now she's learned something. I feed you, Grandpa. <laughs> Then I kept telling her, no, we feed you. No, it's you. And she's trying her level best. And there's something within us that leans towards that. There's an issue to address, there's a problem to solve. And I put sincerely my, all my efforts into it. I do not know what issues weigh upon your heart this morning. I do not know what problems you have to solve. I do not know what pain you have to overcome. But every single one seated here and seated there and all around the world come here with hearts laden, burdened. And so some of you may have arrived here and you got health problems. The doctor has just told you that you got something incurable and there's a clock that you're facing and that clock may not move apart from the grace of God. Some of you arrive here and you got financial problems how you dug yourself into a big hole, I do not know. But you came from gambling, you have to repent before you big, dig a bigger hole for your family to fall into and never get out of. Some of you arrive here and you got relational problems, brokenness, and you think you can kick the can down the road. And somewhere along the line, time will heal. I want to say something to you. Time will not heal. It is God who will heal through time. Time is not a healer. You might meet the person that wronged you or you wrong 20 years from now. The moment you see him or her, it will still spark the same pain if you do not commit that relationship to God. So we arrive here with issues upon our hearts, with troubles to solve, with problems to resolve, with pain to soothe. When you read Psalm 73, it begins book 3 of 150 Psalms. Book 1 begins with someone, and someone as blessed is the man who does not do three things, does not sit, does not stand, does not walk in the way of sinners and mockers. But his delight is meditating on the law of God, 
to live according to God's character, to live according to God's will, to live according to God's word for the glory of God. That's how it begins. And so the blessedness of obeying God. By the time you arrive at Psalm 73, I want to warn you first, the 9, 10 Psalms that we're going to study in our small groups here called discipleship groups, and I don't know for those, for those turning, tuning in from overseas, cell groups, whatever is the name, we gather in small groups throughout the week to study. And as we study that, the Psalms carry one main theme. Book 1 began with someone, blessed is the man who meditates. If you live this way according to God's will, you will be blessed. By Psalm 73, if you live this way according to God's will, you may not be blessed. And so the Psalms are full of angst, full of struggle, full of wrestling, full of strife, full of issues and problems and pain to overcome and resolve. And so a possible structure of the Psalm looks this way. Let's take a look at that. Okay. So the most important question you and I have to resolve in looking at this psalm and throughout book 3 is, are you going to live your life envying men, envying the world, or are you going to live your life desiring God, pleasing God, and glorifying God, no matter what your present circumstances of faith? That's the most important question. So I do not know how you have arrived here, what weighs upon your heart, but this is the number one question that you should try to resolve. Beyond your ill health, beyond your finances, beyond your troubled relationships, are you going to live your life envying men or desiring God? And so a possible structure of the psalm goes this way. Verse 1 is a standalone. The truth declared, God is good. Then from verse 2 to verse 14, poor me, God is good. But me, God doesn't seem so good to me. I face a crisis, I face a conflict, and I can't get myself out of this. If I don't resolve this crisis and conflict, I'm going to spiral downhill, and I might, I might just do a most foolish thing, give up on my faith in God. But then in God's time and grace, as in all Psalms, most Psalms may I say, there is a turning point. So when you read the Psalms, always look for the turning point. Which is the turning point? He always begins in the doldrums. He goes, he begins in the valley, and then he rises by God's grace and reaches the turning point, and then the psalm often ends in hope. Not all, but most and the majority. And so the turning point, he moves from poor me to rich me. And then finally, the truth is confirmed. He began with God is good. He ends with God is indeed good even to me. So no longer poor me, but blessed me. God is good to me. So are you, are you okay to follow? You're still with me? It has everything to do with you and I. Very, very important. So that could be a possible structure of the psalm, but I know you cannot remember five points. So I cut it down to three points <laughs> out of love for you. And out of three points, I think you can remember only one point. Right? Though we plow in 20 hours, 30 hours, we put in 10,000 words in this or whatever number of words, that's all you can remember. Firstly, he faces a crisis of faith. Then there's a turning point as he confesses his, his self-sufficiency, his self-wisdom in looking at this, and then there's a turn. And finally, there's the discovery of God. The discovery of God that will turn his life forever and ever. 
You think you can remember this? A crisis of faith, a confession of sin, and then a discovery of God. It begins with self, it ends with God. That's always your journey. You want to write that down somewhere for your life? It begins with your self-pain, your self-dysfunction. It will always end with God putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. If you begin with self and end with self, Humpty Dumpty will never be put back again. And so here we go. Verse 1. Truly God is good. Do you think the writer could have put a full stop there? Truly God is good. And if truly God is good, then is not just what God can do for Israel and for us. God is innately in character good. God is good. You could put a full stop, but there's no full stop. God is good, and especially to Israel. So immediately Israel has to know, this is who God is, before you can even work out and pray for what can God do to us and for us. This is God who is good. Pure does not mean sinless. Pure does not mean perfect. Pure carries the meaning of wholly devoted, wholly committed, that no matter what happens in life, the pure in heart run after God. Whatever life throws at us, we run after God, we choose God. And then you need to understand heart. And heart appears six times in its 28 verses. And what does the Bible often mean by heart? Heart is, this is Adrian's heart, this is Christian's heart, this is Adrian's heart. It's the headquarters of a man, headquarters of a woman, the command post, and Jesus would come along and say, 2,000 years ago, out of a man's fallen heart comes all kinds of evil thoughts. This is the command center. And the command center since Genesis chapter 3 is used in evil thoughts. If you ever doubt that you are a fallen being, a sinful being, listen to the Lord Jesus about the heart. And then he goes on. But, there's a huge but here. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious. I was envious of the arrogant. Why? How? When? When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Obviously, arrogant and wicked are put side by side, interchangeable as terms and the same group of people. So, what does he mean by but? God is good to Israel. But as for me, he seems to be saying, I'm unusual. I'm being single out here. I'm like a standalone. I'm like a spiritual freak. God is good to Israel, but as this, at this moment, as I walk through this crisis of faith, he doesn't seem so good to me because there's conflict in my being, conflict in my heart and my soul. And when does this crisis of faith begin? When I became, I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Let me pause here for not a derailment of the sermon, but a spiritual truth that you must hear again and again. How did he fall into this conflict and crisis? By what he saw. You become what you see. You do not become what you think. You do not become what your heart longs after. You become what you see. Be careful what you look at. We become what we look at, and then we decide with our eyes. Where's the theology of this? The theology of this is Genesis chapter 3, where Eve saw that the fruit, 
was good for gaining wisdom, a devilish wisdom, a diabolical wisdom, a prohibited wisdom that God said you can eat from any tree in the Garden of Eden except from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And that's why we call it a diabolical wisdom, a devilish wisdom, a prohibited wisdom. You grasp at this and you won't know how to handle with, uh, evil. You want to know what evil is? You know it, but you don't know what to do with it. The knowledge of evil and the superintendence of evil belongs to God. The turning around of evil belongs to God. It never belongs to you. You dabble with evil, evil controls you. From that point onwards, we have become a whole race of humanity under Adam and Eve, who we become what we look at. We think by what we see. So let me just pause here and slow it down a little bit for all of us. Is that you this morning? That you have become in the last week, in the last months, the last years, what you see? Whatever you see, you long for. Whatever you see, you pursue. Whatever you see, you run after it. And that's why your life is so two-minded. Your life is so double-minded. Your life is so anemic because you look upon what this world runs after and you long for this world. You become what you see. There's a spiritual truth that is here. And what does he say of them? Now it is him looking humanly horizontally at the arrogant and the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And so, you know, you read this passage, I'm sorry to say it, but you know, in, in Chinese culture, in Asian culture, in many cultures, people look at you, you put on some weight. Wow, prosperous, huh? successful. Right? Prosperous, successful. Successful, prosperous, put on weight. That's why never, people never look at me and say prosperous or successful. I just came back from a, a, a retreat of the denominational leaders and the Chinese-speaking site leaders. Huh? Hey, how come you're so thin all these years? Huh? I say, my church. Huh? <laughs> They don't, see, they don't see an ounce of prosperity in me. They don't see an ounce of blessedness in me. And that's how we think in the world, right? And there is blessedness in skinny people. All the skinny people would be assured. So he looks around and he sees what is it that they don't have. They have no sufferings. They have no troubles. They are not stricken like the rest of us. So it's not just ill-gained prosperity it seems like they also experience immunity. Prosperity, ill-gained prosperity is one thing. Ill-gained success is one thing. But immunity to trouble. Here they are boasting of what? The goodness of atheism. The goodness of the God forsaking, God forgetting, and God crucifying life. They got no God. And yet they got no troubles. We've got God and we've got faith. At least He has but he has a whole bunch of troubles, unlimited. The ultimate cancel culture is not what you and I face out there, in school, at work. The ultimate cancel culture is when we cancel God in Genesis chapter 3. And from that point onwards, every day you wake up, you cancel God. You listen to the voices of this world, you do not listen to the voice of God. You listen to your pain more than you listen to what God has blessed you, blessed you with in Christ Jesus. You cancel God and you gain success. That's all he sees. This is what they don't have. 
This is what they don't experience. This is what they don't suffer. So what is it they do have? This is what they do have. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Pride is their necklace. So I'm trying to read the words. Violence covers them in a garment. Their eyes swell through their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Fatness out there, follies in here. Fatness out there, follies in here. Right? They scoff and speak with malice in their lips. Totally in they, they threaten op oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Look at that, that verse that's there. Verse, verse 8, is it? Sorry, my eyes. Verse 9. Their tongues are set against heavens. There is no fear of speaking against heaven and no fear of speaking against men. So what is it they don't have? They don't have troubles, they don't have sufferings. They cancel God and they succeed. This is what they do have. They have pride and tons of it. And in that pride of self, of self-wisdom, of self-sufficiency, of self-effort and self-success, they do violence to others. Inhumanity to fellow men as they climb up the richness ladder. And they dare to speak against God with impunity. And there are no consequences for this whole being did you notice the psalm? It's like he identifies every part of their body, from their eyes, to their mouths, to their hearts. Every part is referred to figuratively and is to punch home the message. Their whole person, the whole being, is anti-God. And guess what? There are no consequences, only worldly success. And this is what they do against God. So violence against others. What's that violence? You know why? We must always as a church reach out from a spectrum of a spectrum of the migrant workers in our dorms. Six, seven hundred of them highlighted to us through COVID-19 for one of the worst and biggest clusters open up there. And that's what caught my eye. Is there something I can do? Is there something I can do in leading ARPC to be concerned for the migrant workers. Do you know anything about their living conditions? We must always have a heart for the downtrodden. God told us that in the Bible. To look out for the widows, to look out for the fatherless, to look out for the foreigners. Israel failed that miserably. And so, from that, to bus, to the prison's ministry, to the boys' brigade, to the girls' brigade, to the other spectrum of the marketplace ministries, notice I didn't say from marketplace ministries to migrant workers. That will be to put us on a social economic scale. Whether we are here or there, there or here, we are all one. Amen? We are all equal. Do you believe? When you meet a migrant worker from Bangladesh and Pakistan and India, he's equal to you in worth, in value, in his personhood and humanity. He so happens to be born in a country that is corrupted. And that's why he came to work in this country, which is more successful. That may never get into your heart and your head and your soul that this person should be treated less than you. And so we go out. And 45 minutes of that thing, right? They have never been to such places that we have taken them to. They have never been dignified by respect that we give to them. And some of the places that they come from, 
Let's go for India. In Indian culture and history, there's a caste system. Brahmin right at the top, Dalits untouchable right at the bottom. You can still Google today. You can still Google today and you'll find the reports as current as now of what? That the Dalits are confined to one or two occupations. I've shared this many times. The number one occupation that they have is to be collectors of human excrement in the poorest villages, villages that they live in. And they can only live in the poorest villages. And they collect that, and we call that night soul. In olden Singapore, in olden Malaysia, I grew up in a small town in Malaysia, it was night soul, no flush toilet. 12 children, two parents, one grandma. 15 of us using that. If they don't collect the night soul uh, by night, maggots appear. The smell is awful. I do not know how I lasted 18 years in that home. I have no idea. Imagine that your main job is to carry the excrement upon your head. To drive the message, you were born into this caste and you will remain in this caste. You are subservient to us. You are inferior to us. That's violence to in being inhumane to fellow men. And you can still read the reports. If the upper caste wants to molest a Dalit girl or teenager or woman and rape her, he does. And there's no recourse to the law of the land. The police will file the report. Will they file the report? No. Indian culture has it. Chinese culture in our history has it. Every culture has it. What's our violence that we do today? The violence we might do today is to think that all of us have arrived at middle-class Singaporeans, English-educated. There are so many who do not live in that zone. Amen? Amen, true. And what on earth are you going to do about it? To think that you are cleverer than others? No. When you walk through an HDB estate, I look at that and I say, Mona, look at that. Look at that. Look at that. When I look at the foreign workers' dorms, during COVID, I jump into a car with Pastor um, Gift and went with him and Pastor Longus. Let's see where they live. Do you know where they live? Some of them are in built-in dorms. Some of them are in very much poorer conditions. And when Samuel gave, Pastor Samuel gave him to check them out, some of them during COVID were left by their employers without food. And then after seeing that, I said, came back to the leader and said, we must do something about this. The violence continues. Somewhere in our brain, we think that we are better than others. May you never think that. May you never think that because we're the children of God. And they do. And what, what is it they do against God? And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? By now, they are not just flaunting their ungodly success, but they are taunting God. Does He know what we are pondering in our hearts? The follies we are pondering in our hearts? The self-pleasure that we are pondering in our hearts? Does He know what he's get, we are getting with our hands? And if He does know what's happening to our hearts and what we are doing with our hands, can He do anything about it? You can almost hear the mockery here if this is a valid interpretation, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And so he envies. And there is conflict. And he says, this is what envy did to him. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. This is not something that he thinks about then he forgets about it. It lingers upon his mind. It weighs upon his heart. It's so weighty, he can't move on. 
If I had said I will speak thus, I would betray the generation of your children. What does he mean by that? A possible meaning is, if I had just expressed this, I could have stumbled fellow believers around me. So I kept it in my heart and kept this conflict and soul searching. And so you want to know what envy did to him? Envy did to him is he's actually expressing the futility of fidelity to God. Tell me, God, what's in this for me? You tell me, blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of sinners, and blessed am I when I meditate on your law and trust in you, and like a plant watered by streams of water, I will be blessed. What happened here? All I feel, all I experience in day-to-day living is the futility of faithfulness to you. And then the paralysis of my inner conflict, for this inner conflict is sapping me, draining me. I can't function. I'm not normal anymore. And the loneliness of a solitaire search for an answer out of this conundrum, an answer out of this problem. Then, verse 16 and 17, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It's wearing him down as he thinks about it and thinks about it. And may I say, there's a difference between thinking about it and overthinking. Overthinking will get you on the wrong track of your faith journey because you step into a space you shouldn't step into. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 29-29, the secret things belong to God. You do not step into the space to try to understand everything that happens, that derails your life, that brings dysfunction to your life, that derails the world and brings brokenness to the world. That belongs to God. That doesn't mean you don't try, but you don't overstep it. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. And so, here is the turning point. Verse 17. And why is it the turning point? He enters the sanctuary, he enters the temple, and the temple is the meeting place between the holy God and His people, mediated by a whole sacrificial system. You come, you confess your sin, you offer your offerings, the priest lays your sins upon the sacrifice, you are right temporarily, and then enter into the presence, and the law of God is read, you know again the conduct of God, the character of God. You know again the conduct of God to Israel. And you walk out of there having met the holy God. And so he enters and his vision and his views and his values change. Which tells you there's a very important thing. There's a place for that personal time with God. A very necessary place for solitude. And solitude is different to loneliness. We just had a workshop on loneliness yesterday and so good to be part of a panel and one of our panelists right said in her medical in her professional practice loneliness deprives the soul a quote that she got from paul Tillich. but solitude enriches the soul please know the difference there's a place for personal devotion and solitude with god which we are trying to promote as much as possible as the anchor of your life you don't abide deeply in God, in His character and His word, you're going to drift. You listen to Jesus in John 15, you don't abide in His word and His love. You're not going to bear fruit. You're going to just do things 
and bear no true fruit that pleases God. There's a place for that. But if you go on just being by yourself, he enters the sanctuary obviously in fellowship and his focus is on God. And so we are warned of the danger of what? Of being fixed and focused on one part. He was fixed and fixated on just one part. He kept looking in this direction. The ungodly prosper. The wicked prosper. They succeed. He kept looking at that. And then his whole faith in God was shattered. It's a little bit like, you know, back to children and grandchildren when they first go and get their vaccinations and jabs. They don't know what's coming because they are just so young, but they get vaccinated from young. And so the jab goes in, bang. They cry. The next time they see the needle, they'll know. They'll cry before the needle comes. You ever brought your child to the dentist for the very first time? Right? And the child sits there at the dentist chair, drill me. <laughs> Have you ever seen a child say, please treat me, even though I got a toothache? If you go to a good dentist, right, the good dentist say, look at the ceiling, all the beautiful pictures, there's Noah's Ark, the animals going in, the fishes of the sea, and the child is crying, crying, crying. All they can think about is zzzz. What happened? They're totally fixated on the jab, on the needle, on the drill. And once you fixated on that, you do not know that your parents brought you there for your good, for that jab. You do not know that you're sitting in the dentist chair for your good because you've got a toothache and you can't get it out. It's going to get worse. But all you can focus on is that drill or that needle. So that's the problem when you embark on this solitaire journey by yourself which tells you you always need to come to services, to sit in your room in solitaire worship because of COVID, necessarily so, is one thing. But now that the things have been lifted around the world, why are you sitting, still sitting at home? I know it rained this morning. It's so comfortable in your bed. If you have a medical reason, we understand. But if you don't have a medical reason, we would highly encourage you to come back to your discipleship groups and two services because it is in fellowship with one another and I just preached two weeks ago from Ephesians 3 in another church and Ephesians 3 Paul's praise that you together with all the saints will grasp how high and deep and long and wide the love of God for us is in Christ Jesus that means you need fellowship you need to come together for DGs and services to grasp the love of God when you face the hatred of men. When your life is disrailed and you're facing dysfunction and brokenness, you can sort it out a certain amount by yourself. But you will never get the complete picture until you fellowship with God's people. That was true in the Old Testament, that's true today. And so, he gets this. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as fathoms. Notice from this point onwards, he's not just, I look at them, I conclude. I look, I conclude. I look, I conclude. He now looks upwards and says, you, you have set them in slippery places. How they are destroyed in a moment, because, O Lord, like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And what he's saying here, what he's saying here is vitally important. You walk around presuming and pretending 
that God is dead. You walk around presuming or pretending that God is dead. And then if you walk around pretending that God is dead, you feel so alive. You become a superstar here on earth. That's what the wicked get off, get away with. But when God, who seems so dead, arouses, when you factor God into your life, this is who you really are. You and me are the walking dead. All four or five hundred of us here, there in Bishan, everywhere in the world, because there's a God who created you, because there's a God you rebel against, because there's a God that will call your life to judgment, you realize no matter how long you live, you are really the walking dead, isn't it? All of us will die. And Romans 6, 30 to 33 says, the wages of sin is death. When you factor God in, you are not immortal. You are not a superstar. When you factor God in, you realize you are a shadow of the image of God. No matter how many times you go to the pharmacy, no matter how many top specialists you see, no matter how many times you go to the gym, you are going to die. And death is not an aged problem, for the wages of sin is death. You want to walk around after this, as you walk out of this hall, there in Adam and around the world, I'm the walking dead. You really are. That's called living with humility. That's called living with fragility. And that's called living with mortality in front of me. Very early on, I read this book, Tuesdays with Maury, which has been made into a movie. And it was in that book that I got the inspiration to do what? He says he often takes his portable canvas chair to drive to a cemetery and graveyard in America and sit there and have his quiet time to remind himself that one day I will be here. And that always puts his perspective back. That always gets him to revalue, review his values. That always gets him to calibrate and reprioritize his priorities. So I told you in my early years, when I lived at Princep Street, while we were being built at Adam Road, a new building was coming up, I used to go to Mount Vernon and have my quiet time there. And then when I shifted, I used to go to Trachukang ever so often and walk through it and say, one day I'll be here. You might want to go to Mandai. We don't have to go to Mandai now as the pastoral team because we go there 50, 60 times a year. That's the number of funerals we have in the RPC. So when was the last time you did this? And with humility recognize when you factor God in and factor your rebellion against God and factor that the wages of sin is death, you will live with humility, you will live with fragility, you will live with your mortality, not your immortality. That's vitally important, my friends. And so, by this time, he arrives, and there's a reversal of fortunes. The prosperous in this world, the successful in this world, they have temporal prosperity and security, will turn to eternal insecurity, because their destiny will be separation from God forever and ever. And as it were, the world's heavyweight will become lightweights for all eternity. So every country in the whole world produces an index, you know? Who is who? Time magazine every year will produce person of the year. The 100 most influential people of the year very seldom 
does Jesus make it to that list? I'm quite sure that Bill Gates made, made it to the list. I'm quite sure that Elon Musk made, made it to the list. But I tell you, a hundred years from now, people won't know Bill Gates. A thousand years from now, for all eternity, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? So don't spend all your effort trying to get into who is who of your, of your careers because you will be forgotten. Don't make all that effort and sell your soul en route to the most hundred influential people in the future or in the present. In God's eyes, there's only one influential person. It is God. And now He's handed all authority in heaven and on earth to His Son. So VIPs, very important persons in this life, in the end, the Hebrew word it means afterwards. In the afterwards, will become NIPs, NIPs, not important persons. So you've got to figure out you're temporarily VIP, but you'll be eternally nobody in God's presence. Which is the most Im more important status to strive for, to work for, to hang on to at all costs? And that's vitally important. And so the application of this, this is the curse of envy. And he's facing it as a man of God. So the envious achiever, or can I cancel the word? I don't know how to do that. You can help me on the power. You cancel the word. The envious believer. When on earth did you get on the treadmill of envy? You need to ask yourself that. And some of you got on the treadmill of envy very young. Maybe like Cain against Abel. From young, you always had something against your sister because she was slightly prettier than you and favoured by your father. You always had something against your brother because whatever he touched academically turned to gold. But you always struggled and they thought that you were a problem in the family. So for you, sibling rivalry, envy, started very young. And if you don't confess that, you don't fess up to that, you don't surrender that, you suppress that. When your father and mother passes away, you will sue the daylights out of your brother. It didn't begin upon your father's death. It began very young. That's why Cain killed Abel. So some of us, we get on the treadmill of, of envy. When? Through culture. And every culture has honour and shame. All those who are academically good are honoured. All those who are not academically good are shamed. We try not to. Our policies try not to. Whatever we try to call it, normal stream, express stream, right? N levels. We can't seem to kick this out, kick, kick this away. So somewhere along the line, you get on this envy treadmill. And the most frightening about this envy treadmill is you cannot step off. You dare not step off because of FOMO, the fear of missing out. And FOMO, and can I just tweak that around? Maybe it's FOSO. The, the fear of being sold out, sold out by God. I gave my whole life to Him, but what is it I'm gaining? What is it in here for me? All I get for believing in Him is sickness in my father and sickness in my body and sickness in my child. All I get is being retrenched. Where's the reward for godliness? Where's the reward? And so we have to beware the worship 
of worldly success. The worship of worldly success. And we are smack in the middle of PSLE. Of course, I planned this psalm exactly for this. <laughs> of course not. I didn't know. I've forgotten what dates PSLE was on. But I know it's around now. Right? And so, what are you telling your children? You don't study here. Uh, you know future. My future, that is successful already. But I don't know about you. Huh? You better make sure you succeed. Right? So you become a channel of... God made you, as a Christian parent, to be a vessel and channel of... There's a difference between you being a Christian parent and non-Christian parent. As a Christian parent, you are a channel and vessel of serenity. And you bring your children to serenity by saying, God is sovereign over your life. Sovereignty brings serenity. If you are non-Christian, you'll be a channel of anxiety. And a channel of anxiety is quite different to a channel of sovereignty and serenity. If you don't do well, PSLE is the end of you. I've told this story many times, right? I went to the zoo when my kids were young. Uh, walking from one enclosure to the other, and a father and his son walk up to this enclosure. It was the giraffe. And the son, the young son, I don't know, four or five years old, called out and said, Zebra! The giraffe he called Zebra. The father turned to him and you don't know the difference between giraffe and zebra? As if that's the end of the world for him. For the life of me, <laughs> he's four or five years old. There's all the chance in the world. And so you need to understand as the O levels roll up, as the A levels roll up, that your child, as much as we are not defined by our geography, your child is not defined by their grades. Amen? And you have to sort out whether you are a carnal, worldly person, or your values are now being redeemed through Christ Jesus. And no matter how hard it is, as you see the world speed away with godlessness, you're going to hold on to Jesus, hold on to God. And however your children turn out, there's a multiplicity of, of intelligences. Some of them could be intelligent in sport. Some of them could be intelligent in drama. Some of them could be intelligent in arts and design. Not everybody succeeds in academia or else the whole nation will be just one big university or one big biopolis. Wouldn't that be boring? Yes. Thank God there's sports. Thank God there's the esplanade. Thank God that life is diverse. There are seven intelligences according to this Harvard professor. Go read it. And so we need to know. I'm back to Harvard when I was there 20 over years ago. The chaplain said, Peter Gomez, he went to speak at a high school. It was one of those top high schools for, for girls in which they groomed them for the Ivy League universities. The chances of them getting an Ivy League university was supremely high. And he went to speak, and he spoke on do not worry. He preached with all his heart, and after that, a father came up to him. said, I don't appreciate what you just said to the children. My daughter is sitting here. It was worry and anxiety that got us to push her to enter the school. It was worry and anxiety that got her to get the grades. And you tell her not to worry. Which world do you live in? This world, the currency of this world is anxiety. The currency of Jesus' world is sovereignty and serenity. There's a very huge difference. And I heard this story a few times over COVID. True stories. Son or daughter, want to become a doctor, right? Academically, intelligently, cognitively, will make it sure pass. But my son or daughter 
not very good in terms of talking. And you know, to get into medical school now is not your grades, they have to interview you. But during COVID, they cancelled all interviews for this university. And so the child got in, comes here too. <laughs> Would you have been able to plan that? All your life you're worried. He or she has a dream to become a medical doctor. But I don't want to dash her dreams or his dreams because I know it's going to be very hard. He's going to qualify with flying grades, right? And, and A-levels. But when he comes to the interview, ah, oh, ah, uh, And he's not going to pass. No interviews. Straight into medical school. Would you have been able to work that out? The sovereignty of God brings serenity into your life. So you've got to work out whether you want to be a channel of anxiety or channel of sovereignty and serenity. And then moves on to the confession of sin. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. This is what envy did to him, and not just to him, what envy did to him and his trust and his faith in God. If firstly he said in the first few verses up to this point, up to verse 21, he firstly said, right, fidelity is futile, the futility of faithfulness. Now he's furious. It's not just futile, he's angry, he's livid, right? So when things were not turning out, I couldn't solve this crisis of faith. I was angry at God, I was angry at life, I was angry at faith in God in my journey. You ever been angry with God? I mean, to be honest, you have, and I have. When you slam the door, when you are shot with people, because you do not know whether God is on your side or against you, you are angry with God. And you've got to beware. You must never underestimate what envy might make you do. And why do you think we chose as a responsive reading? In the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, that as he stood before Pilate, Pilate knew in Mark 15 verse 10 is recorded, Pilate, a Gentile, a Roman, he knew what was going on in God's people's, God's people's heart. That the chief priest and the religious elite had arrested Jesus and brought him to him, brought Jesus to him to be crucified. And did you notice? Out of envy. It was envy that murdered the Son of God. And the worst envy you could have is envy in Christian circles. Envy in Christian marriages. Envy in Christian families and envy in Christian circles. When was the last time you read Galatians 5? So you put on the fruit of the Spirit. And Galatians 5 will end with Galatians 5, 26, 27, 28. says, then live by the Spirit. You will have the Spirit. You walk by the Spirit. And you walk by the Spirit, you will stop envying and provoking each other. That envying and provoking each other belongs to your flesh that Satan will work overtime on, there's nothing worse than envy within the church, in Christian circles. I was very young out of Bible college and then took over ARPC, merged Adam Road and Woodlands because the founding pastor of Woodlands had died. And so we merged it and we named it ARPC, Adam Road Presbyterian Church. Previously, it was warm, Woodlands Adam Road Ministry and then evolved to Adam Road Presbyterian Church. Right. And it grew from about 60, 80 people to 110, to 200, to 300, to 400. 
Then my friend from Bible College, who was in another church, another, another church, and he said to me, hey, Chris, I, can I meet up with you for lunch? I said, met up with me. And he said, I just want to warn you uh, that some people are not happy that AOPC is growing so fast, you know. It was the first time I ever heard something like that in my life. I was that innocent, thinking that people would be rejoicing. And if there's any way we are blessed by God, we'll be a blessing to others. I sat there stunned for a while. Some people are not happy. So I want you to watch out, brother. I'll pray for you. That was the first time. You think Satan rejoices at the growth of his church? That we have arrived at 1,800 adults with 1,000 children, 600 attending our children's church on both sides, 350, 400 you. You've got to pray like crazy. That envy does not surface in our hearts here. Between the pastors, between the elders and deacons, between Adam and Bishan, that we are not identified by our location. And in God's grace, in about two years' time, when we arrive at Tengah, you won't find your identity by, I'm Adam, I'm Bishan, I'm, I'm Adamite, I'm a Bishanite, and I'm a Tengahite. <laughs> if I ever hear that, if the pastors ever hear that, they should shoot you. <laughs> Crucify that. Your first identity is, I'm in Christ. And that's why I highly encourage you to sign up for the New Year's Eve dinner. When you come to a New Year's Eve dinner, do you say, I'm Adamite, I'm Bishanite, I'm Rhoda Fellowship, I'm Tabitha Fellowship, I'm Youth Fellowship. We put the Rhoda women and, and the foreign, uh, the bus men always at the premium seats right up in front. Why? Because they are VIPs. You know that? We don't ever have guests of honours. They are the guests of honours. That's how we live our life here. Just in case you don't understand the theology of our methodology. And sometimes you just think, ah, it's a big dinner. No. The big dinner has a lot of gospel truths to it. So sign up for it next week because the places are limited. It's so good that Children's Church Camp is on, right? Totally sold out within a few hours. Basic Camp will be on and we totally sold out. And next year, by the grace of God, if COVID doesn't revisit us in some other form, the church camp will be on. See, I have to lead you to clap. In charismatic churches, they were, ah! Not Presbyterian, clap or don't clap, clap or clap. You never know, not as a Presbyterian, whether you can clap or don't clap. You can do anything except not be disorderly. Orderly clapping is okay. It's very Presbyterian. I've lost my way. <laughs> so you never underestimate what envy might make you do. Envy blinds you. Envy, envy kills relationships. Envy, of, envy offends God. Envy breaks down people. So you're blinded by envy. You're enlightened by God. That was the experience of the psalmist. And what did he experience? Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Do you notice in the first few verses, first part of the psalm, is him and the wicked. What fixated on them succeeding, and him, poor me, poor me. But now there's a turning point, he enters the sanctuary, he looks, and then it's now him and God, him and God. But look hard at the verses, I am continually with you. And then from that moment onwards, you expected him to say, I hold your right hand. I listen to your counsel. 
and I will be with you in glory. He switches that and he says, you hold my right hand, you counsel me, and you will receive me into glory. He's actually saved by God and God alone. He's saved not by the 5Gs of technology, he's saved by the 3Gs of God. It was God who grasped my hand or else I would have slipped. It was God who guided me with counsel or else I would have been so darkened and so fixated with the success of the wicked. It, was, it is God who will hold me fast and bring me from suffering now to glory forever, from looking like a loser now to be a winner forever. So do not envy worldly success. And when you envy worldly success, you spend your time avoiding trouble, you spend your time avoiding suffering. A true child of God would do the reverse. And what's the reverse? You move from envying man to desiring God. Whom have I in heaven? His focus now shifts to heaven. And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Nothing, nothing. They can have their runaway success. I don't care. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So, it's as, as it were, no? He goes in and watches a movie. I suffer vertigo, so I don't usually go and watch 3D movies. If you ever have, ever watch a 3D movie, you walk in, you can't watch it just like that. They have to give you 3D glasses. And you watch the 3D glasses, everything becomes clear. Three-dimensional. He walks around two-dimensional. Him and the wicked, horizontal. He enters the sanctuary, is 3D glasses. He sees everything clearly. He sees not their present, he sees their ending. They are afterwards. And afterwards, this is what he sees. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. So don't look at worldly success. Don't spend your time avoiding trouble. Don't spend your time avoiding dysfunction in your life. Spend your li life desiring God, embracing God, embracing the suffering, embracing the brokenness, embracing the sickness, that out of the suffering and the sickness and the brokenness, He will bring redemption. Amen? You desire God's character and desire God's purpose, which is to strip you of all self-sufficiency and make you glorious with Him and glorious in Him. That is the gospel. And that is fulfilled in Christ and Christ alone. For when you envy others, you would think this way. That life has become a series of forgotten persons. I believe in God and I'm forgotten. I believe in God and I'm forgotten. Why believe in God? The futility of that and the ferocity of that. But as you listen to God and His Word, as you look finally to Jesus and the cross, when He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken temporarily, raised to rule eternally. Three days later, He rises. And so you desire God and desire the Lord and you don't spend your time pursuing the world and its success. You embrace the suffering that must come your way, that will come your way through brokenness and dysfunction, through derailment and know that through it all, there are no forgotten persons as shown in Jesus and in us. And how might you do that? You need to practice your own devotional time with God. 
You need to join in fellowship with each other to get a true picture of the beauty and the majesty of Jesus, to behold Him again and again. And so here in Bisham, we're going to sing, He will hold me fast. Then, Adam, you're going to celebrate the communion and finish with, The Lord is my salvation. I shared this, did I share this? I can't remember, but it struck me. At the same conference that I went to, put up at the Gettys, just not wonderful music and worship, but wonderful testimonies. And the most wonderful testimony was to see in their prime concert, a Ukrainian sister in Christ, a Russian sister in Christ, standing on stage and singing, He will hold me fast. Hang on to God, no matter how it looks humanly between them. They are at war humanly. They hate each other's guts humanly. But in Christ, the beauty of Christ, the love of Christ, the redemption of Christ, the Christ who puts Humpty Dumpty back together again, you must be overwhelmed by the beauty and majesty of Him. You will stand and sing this closing song in Adam in preparation for the communion. We will stand and sing this closing song here. The Lord bless you and keep you. As the musicians come up and we get ready, I want you to prepare your heart to sing this song, He Will Hold Me Fast. I want to ask you two questions you can take back. Think about, pray with someone, pray silently by yourself at the end of the service. And throughout the week, if not throughout the, till the end of this year, ask yourself, how are you practically going to move from envying the world to desiring God? Number one, how are you practically, whether you're single, married, or as a family, going to move from envying men and the world's success to desiring God at all costs? And secondly, how can you practically embark on a journey and the journey of not avoiding trouble but embracing suffering so that you might partake of the glory of God? Not avoiding trouble but embracing suffering en route to the glory of God. Two things for you to ponder as we sing this song.